Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 100 Podcast with me, Tai Schefter, and my co-host, Reza V. Today, it's week 10, and we're talking about social capital. And who is better to join us than Dr. Rick Elmas, the author of Social Capital 2.0. He's really an expert on the subject. Hey, Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you all? We are good. We are good. Rick, uh, first of all, straight up. Can you explain to a listener what social capital is in the most brief way possible? I will do my best. As, as we all know, there's a, there's a lot of definitions for social capital. So we'll just stick to a strict one of social and capital. Capital being something that's measurable, um, something that we can show provides gains or losses. And then social obviously being the relationship aspect. So At the end of the day, we're looking at creating value through human relationships. Okay, so my social capital is my relationships, the, the relationship itself, or what I bring to those relationships with me? Well, it does go a little bit deeper. So as we start really defining you know, the pieces of it, uh, I try to stick with three generally agreed upon concepts of what constitutes social capital. So there is relational capital, which is actually the relationship piece of it. There is cognitive capital, and that's actually kind of blends into relational, but it's more so the uh, knowledge and information that we can bring to a relationship or benefit to that relationship from that perspective. And then the structural capital is how others see us or, you know, for, for networking purposes, our, our brand of sorts and the processes that we normally follow, what people can typically expect from us when we're performing a task. Got it. Now, doctor, would you say um, having social capital is your access to other capitals through relationships, or that's not the proper definition? It could be an access point, and you have to go into the, the couple other different concepts here. So there is bonding capital. And bonding capital is within your social networks or close social networks, such as family and friends that you interact with regularly and you have more of an intimate relationship with. And then bridging capital is where you're going to have relationships with external partners or groups, and it can be relationships between groups. So it can function in that way as an access to, to other things, but I think it would function through bridging, uh, those bridging type relationships. And how would that translate to... a regular Joe or an individual in, in, a, in their professional career, how does, how does that affect their, their life? Well, we get into some other topics when we talk about that as well, even beyond social capital. So we start looking at, uh, through cognitive capital, we can look at cognitive biases. And they've actually built a codex around cognitive biases. There are 180 known cognitive biases <laughs> that we, we build naturally. Uh, it's heuristically built, um, and we build it uh, as shortcuts in our brain. We are trying to be efficient. You know, in the, in the old, old days, we would uh, efficiently remember that we should run from saber-toothed tigers <laughs> if they were coming after us. Uh, we still have those functions built into our brain today. So when we're interacting with other groups of people and we're trying to form those bridging relationships, You have to be able to understand some of those cognitive biases that you have. Um, understanding social capital helps you do that. If you explore your biases through relationships in your bonding relationships, you can 
feel like you're in a safe place, a comfortable place, and work on those types of cognitive biases that you may have. Um, and then when you go into a bridging situation or networking situation, you feel more comfortable in talking to others um, that are different than you. And that's why I encourage when you, when you are in a bonding space, when you have those close personal relationships, try to do that with people who may not think the same as you. Try to form bonding relationships with, with any and everybody. Look at each person as an individual and you know, gain trust, gain um, a relationship with these people so you can test those things. And then it really helps you in a, in a bridging situation, networking situation where you're with a lot of people that you may be unfamiliar with to more readily be able to talk to those people, feel more comfortable approaching those people um, because you've made an expansive, uh, an expansive set of, of criteria in your mind of who is okay to talk to. You know, you may be able to form connections with them through personal experiences that, that you know that they may have because you, you have interacted with people of different races, religion, you know, everything. That's uh, um, interesting because today, today, one year ago, I left uh, Tel Aviv and moved here to Vancouver. Uh, and I felt that, you know, some, I, I'd love to hear your take on it because some of my social capital got uh, stayed back home, right? And uh, found myself in a new place, not knowing anyone here. Uh, the first thing I started doing is going to events and started networking and meeting the people here. And I did have some introduction from Connection in Israel. So I guess this is the hand of the social capital reaching across the ocean uh, to Vancouver and doing some of the connections. Uh, but did I lose any capital, any social capital by moving here and not knowing anyone and I had to restart? Or did I brought my capital with me and started it uh, here from scratch? Well, the, the interconnectivity of the world. Uh, well, first off, let me precurse this by saying I'm, I'm not huge on technology. I love face-to-face -face communication. <laughs> and I can see all the reasons, but I'm, I'm not going to be negative on it. What I will say about, the, uh, about technology, the, it's allowed us to be very interconnected throughout the world. Um, so I would say that a move previously, so you're talking about a move such as yours maybe back in 1950, it might have been more difficult to to carry capital with you because it would be very hard for people at that point in time to reach back and talk to people in Israel or other places where you've been built up capital um, social capital with with the people there uh, now I'd say it is a little a little bit easier because they, those those connections can happen people can talk we can video chat um, and they can connect with people who know you and know how you function know what your structural capital is like um, but it, it definitely still is there. Um, it's definitely something that I, I don't like to say we, we lose it, but I mean, we kind of do. Definitely has to be adapted. Even, even my move uh, a few years back when I moved from the southern part of the United States to New Hampshire, um, I had to reassess my social capital here and build new networks here. Um, so definitely needs to be adapted and changed. I, like I said, I don't want to use the term that you lost it because it is still there. Yeah. It just has a different value because you're in a different geographical location. I want to share my experience. I, I moved to Vancouver 12 years ago from Iran and I got to, you know, with, with, um, with all the currency exchange companies and, and all the people that, that help you move funds, you get to transfer your financial capital in a matter of seconds 
but your social capital doesn't transfer that easily. And even though I'm connected with my uncle, I'm connected with all the family and all the friends, a phone call with my dad or my uncle in Iran was worth a lot more capital to me in the business world because they built their businesses over there. Here, it's not worth anything because their connections are not relevant to what I'm doing in Vancouver. The, uh, the, the capital value shifted and changed because the connections and the network is not appropriate to the new situation I'm in. And I'm sure that happens even when you move jobs or move industries. You're in, in one industry, you have a lot of connections, you move the ball quickly. As soon as you move to a different role or a different industry, all of those networks, they're there, but their value drops. And that, that's kind of, I guess, the crux of the, the building of social capital, because if, if anything, what I could say about social capital is that it takes time. And then, it, it, you know, just like in building a relationship, uh, if you go to a new industry or you move to a new place, it just takes, it does take time because relationships take time. And people have to know how you function and build that trust. And trust has to be built over time. And trust is one of the key components of all three of the constructs of social capital. If I'm trying to um, provide information to you. I'm trying to provide cognitive capital to you. Um, you need time with me to know that it's valuable information that I'm, you know, providing you. Same with a relationship. You know, relationships, the trust increases over time. And then as far as the structural capital goes, you know, your brand, what, what trust can you have in me? You know, especially if someone goes on social media, they can obliterate their structural capital in a matter of moments. One post one, one thing to, to um, show a side of yourself that, uh, that people don't, don't uh, connect with. So um, with it being trust and time, it's a sensitive thing. It's a, it's a sensitive thing to build. I try to recommend that people over time build artifacts. You know, I, I, it's like your um, curriculum vitae or your resume is kind of a window into the things that you've done and how you are successful with process. So it's kind of a, artifact of your structural capital whereas in the, you know like me putting out the book the book is a is a uh, a window into my cognitive capital the knowledge that i'm able to share so having those things out there and being known helps to increase um what would become bridging bridging relationships with your social capital you know just um because of all this, not just this podcast, but other podcasts that I've, that I've been a part of and even connections I have right now, you know, I have friends in South Africa that I collaborate with and friends in New Zealand. And those started out as bridging relationships, but they really have become bonding. They're part of my, I guess, homeostasis. They're part of my routine. We talk regularly, we collaborate regularly. Um, and it's really amazing, but I can, I can see these things, these bonding, uh, bonding elements occurring where we're becoming truly friends versus just that exterior network. And um, through, through those relationships, I could see myself building additional bridging relationships in New Zealand or bridging so relationships. It's very interesting that. how you're defining bonding and, and bridging, because when I got introduced to bonding and, and bridging capital for the audience, uh, for those of uh, people, for those that are listening and don't know about it, I quickly try to memorize it in this format that bonding is your close 
friends or family that, that you know, it, you're interconnected with them. There are a lot of, you know, interconnections between the people you know. There's a lot of mutual groups and they act as this net that supports you when you fall. So I think about it as this, you know, structure that, that uh, is supportive. But then there are bridging um, relationships that help you grow because they connect you with different circles that you might otherwise not known of or, or not be able to reach out. But I like how you are saying treat, the, <clears throat> treat even those people as if it's your bonding relationship. And in real life, that's my experience. Um, and I want to get into that. It, that's it's also... It's also why we started the, uh, this podcast, I, I believe. Uh, both Reza and I are kind of new in Canada. Maybe I'm newer, but Reza is also kind of new. Uh, both of us, both our companies are dealing with the exchange of social capital to, to a degree uh, and networking and connections in the end of the day. So uh, our, our, uh, uh, when I met Reza, our social connection, our um, exchange, uh, is very common and based on very common things so i think this is why it was easier for us to uh, go ahead and establish that uh, rick i'd love to get your take on recent changes i don't think that the world now is the same as it was three four months ago and uh, i think that social capital is highly affected and the dynamics have changed uh, what's your take on what happened in the last uh, few months well, there's a lot going on. You know, I, I, I have been uh, remote along with uh, my colleagues uh, since March, I think March 13th or 14th. Um, and what I think has helped us to really be effective, and I think most teams to be effective, is that there were a lot of face-to-face -face bonds built over a long period of time before we stepped into this environment because um, I don't want to speak for my colleague in New Zealand, but I, you know, we, we conversate quite a bit. And I think there's a general consensus that without a visual element, so at least we have this for, you know, for this podcast, uh, but without a visual element, it's really hard to create a relationship as so much of uh, communication is body language and is expressed in nonverbal ways. So, We've been able to remain effective in this remote environment thus far because of those pre-existing relationships that we had built. If we would have began this way, I think it would have been much more difficult for us to remain as impactful as we are. And I'm speaking from my singular case, but I think that's kind of the reflective case of what's going on in the world right now. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of maybe existing relationships get stronger or you know, take impacts because people aren't used to being around each other so much. Um, so those, we're seeing a lot of developments in existing relationships. I think where we're struggling right now is to create uh, long lasting new relationships um, because I feel like relationships can be maintained in a virtual realm, but that physical presence is almost what takes it from bridging to bonding. Uh, I say this with the exception of my friend in New Zealand because I feel pretty well like we have a, a bonding relationship um, at this point. Um, but, you know, like my, my friends in South Africa, for instance, we met in Ireland and we spent like a, basically a week together exploring. We spoke at a conference there together. 
So the basis for our relationship is, is grounded in that face-to-face -face interaction and building trust in the physical space with one another for quite some time uh, before we went here. So when we think about the world and new relationships really not forming in a traditional manner, not forming in what I feel is a, a really uh, continuative manner, unless people are making plans, you know, post-pandemic. I have no idea what people's plans are. I want to dig deeper on that because my okay. company, as you briefly saw, is about connecting people. And yes. I started doing this focus group of interviewing our existing um, users and the ones that yes. were highly active. And I wanted to dig deeper to see whether they're making new connections when they are isolated, when they're in quarantine. Oh, yeah. And almost all of them had this in common that they weren't meeting new people. All they were meeting, uh, all were, they were uh, in touch with were their existing network. They were leveraging that. So those that were networking, hence me, the lucky guy who got, who got finished uh, the 100 uh, journey. Otherwise, I would have got stuck in quarantine halfway through. We were lucky because we made the relationships and now we are harvesting them. We are focusing on them. And a lot of these uh, business individual, business owners or lead generators, they were getting leads from referrals from that existing network. Had they started their business in quarantine, they would have had a much harder time. But I wanted to dig deeper to see what it takes for a virtual remote kind of connection to happen and I got in 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 I encountered the whole idea of live um, interaction like you and I right now versus passive interactions where you leave a comment and then an hour later I go find that conversation and I interact with it or in a forum or whatnot and it got really really complicated very quickly because each one of them has elements that the other one doesn't have and it's pros and cons. And I wanted to get your feedback on, do you think there is a way for technology to bridge what is missing right now? I do think there is room for that. Um, there's, and there's a lot to unpack here because one thing that uh, I've been in debate about with a few different people is how do we create normed behavior uh, in the online space. Because when you talk about places where we have this passive communication, I can get away with pretty much anything. I can say what I want, I can do whatever I want, most of the time anonymously, and I can exit out of that before there's any repercussion to me whatsoever. So my norms of how I interact and how I behave are completely out the window. And there's no governance for that. I mean, there may be some kind of repercussion that I might be banned from using the platform. Well, if I sign in anonymously, who cares? I'll just sign in anonymously again. Mm -hmm. um, so in that regard, I don't think that we, and I speak we as in mankind, <laughs> has come up with a way to generate norms in that environment. And as such, that's kind of off the table as far as getting, I guess, one's true self. And you can see the horrific impacts of that on a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed or anything right now. And the things that people are willing to say to others and do to others, is just outrageous. Um, I think where we can find a place for technology to help us and help maybe create new is in these live environments to your point. Cause even in, if we're watching pre-recorded um, uh, webinars or 
anything of that nature. It's not that they can't be informative, but it's not building anything. You know, if I were to watch you talk, Reza, and I have watched you talk, I've actually watched some videos, I can get an idea about who you are um, and through those videos, but until I actually interact with you in a live setting, it's really, really hard to, to judge how we uh, will connect or not connect or things that we might actually have in common that we had no idea. You know, all we can it's go a, off it's of. It's a ping pong effect too. You say yeah. something, I respond, you respond back. And, and the way we respond to each other tells a lot about us. The thing that I uh, uh, found during these, you know, even uh, intimate Zoom calls with not too many participants, uh, that the new connections that are maybe formed are extremely uh, transactional in nature. Uh, there is no small talk. There is no, you know, it's uh, cut the BS. I can give you one, two, three. You can give me one, two, three. Yes or not. Let's move forward. Very different from, let's say, take the same connection in a, a physical face-to-face uh, -face environment. And my question to you in that regard, is it the limitation of the medium? Is it, uh, uh, you know, the, the half a millisecond delay between you get my uh, audio message and the little glitches in the communications that take it off and throws it off into something completely different? I would really like to be, you know, the bringer of positive news here and say, yes, it is completely the digital environment. But unfortunately, it's kind of where we find ourselves in society. Whereas in times past, building social capital was this natural thing and people wanted to talk to one another and knowledge was actually valuable. You know, you would find, you know, older people had a wealth of knowledge to provide you an insight on the world. Um, we've lost sight of that because information is so readily available. So even in the physical space, even in a face-to-face -face environment, a lot of interactions these days are transactional. You really have to, um, work to understand that you, you as an individual have to work on yourself and acknowledging how you respond to people and how you interact with people. And as sad as it is, make an effort to actually get to know people because we, you know, this goes back to cognitive bias. We are trying to be uh, as efficient as possible. That's what your brain's trying to do. It's making shortcuts all the time to make you as efficient as possible. When you're having conversations, it, it does the same thing. It's that the, uh, what you described, the let's just cut through, cut through all the initial conversation. I'll do one, two, three, you do one, two, three, or we're going to make this happen. Your brain is wired that way. And it's gotten even worse because information is so readily available. You know, take for instance, if I wanted to know how to do something, let's say that I had a flat tire on my car. I might have called my grandfather or my father and said, I've got a flat tire. I don't know how to change it. Can you come help me? Can you show me how to do this? But literally on the side of the road, you can just whip out your phone, go to YouTube. How do I change a flat tire? And you're all set. You don't need anyone else's help. You don't need anyone else's knowledge. And I mean, that's just one example, but literally that could be applied to anything. So these conversations where, knowledge used to be gathered have kind of gone to the wayside. And I wish as, as a whole, the people of the world, we could realize that the knowledge was never the valuable piece of the conversation. It was the wisdom on what to do with the knowledge. And in today's society, that's what we're missing. 
we can get the steps, the process behind how to do something, but we're not getting it from that perspective of that individual person. Um, and that's what we have to tell our brain to connect with. Those transactional uh, type of people, I did notice it before COVID more and more, even going to events uh, where people are constantly in pitch mode. Uh, and I guess it could work to a certain degree being that transactional, but both Reza and I, uh, we met a lot of people and I don't really think that any of us could create a real connection with someone who is coming, uh, you know, in that mindset that only, okay, let's do one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Uh, I don't think that real connections are able to form in that mindset. And currently, uh, that's something that's amplified in the digital environment because we are all confined at home. And that's the right word, amplified, because the digital environment is exposing them. Um, it's their true nature. But now that they're sitting at home, there is a detachment of themselves and your environment. They're behind the screen and they can say, you know what, I've got another Zoom call, bye, and then not see you anymore. Whereas in a, in a regular event, they're obligated to behave in certain manner because there are other people watching and they can't just, you know, get out of the room. I want to quickly uh, make a point about Dr. Mask. Uh, you're a scholar in this area and I couldn't find a lot of books that were post social media about, about social capital. And almost uh, the stuff that I found, the main books are written 2004, like Bowling Alone was about 1999 or 2001. And um, you're one of the um, people that are, is focusing about this during social, during social media. And then beyond that, I'm sure the entire social capital scholar community is, is up in the air debating because of COVID and going forward. What's, what's your experience? How did you, how did you get, into, um, get introduced to social capital? What got you interested? What is you know, social media's role in there? So what initially got me interested is I was doing my dissertation for my doctorate and I kept having to, uh, at the request of several heads of the business department, get more focused more focused, more focused, get deeper, deeper, deeper. And, uh, you know, what I ran into through my dissertation was social capital as a construct. And I noticed that uh, just as you did, a lot of the, a lot of the, the research had stopped around 04 and there was some comments about it, actually some, some commentary from different, different scholars around 2012, there was a little bit of a resurgence, but um, to be honest, a lot of people had abandoned it. Um, which kind of kind of blew my mind because in you know where I was at and what I was seeing happen in the world, I thought it was more important now than it had ever been. You know, and, and you've got huge corporations commoditizing our interests and uh, you know the way we shop and things, and they're pulling from all kinds of information they shouldn't have access to. And you know, if they're going to be pulling all this private information about us and trying to commoditize us as individuals, the least we can do is be appreciative of who we are and explore ourselves and grow our own social capital <laughs> in response and try to do things ourselves and break away from those um, assumptions about ourselves, buying patterns and everything that they've formulated about us. And I think through exploring social capital, we're able to, to do that. So when I come into contact with it, um, I really wanted to, to dig deeper because 
I, I tried my best to see people as individuals in our world because I, between you and I and everyone that listens to the podcast, I, I have an issue within myself, a bias that I recognize within myself that I just have a disdain for stereotypes. I myself grew up very poor down south, so a lot of people stereotype me as being white trash. Um, and it, it really bothers me that we take groups of people and we categorize them in these huge ways, much like these giant corporations are doing to us through our information that they, they take daily. And I wanted to not only myself try to view people as individuals, but help the world to do the same in whatever way I could. Um, it's just cr critically important when everything being fed to us is to create an in and out group through our media on a daily basis. We're all being turned against one another as a group. There are good and bad people in every group of people on the face of the planet. We've got to push ourselves to see that individual. And um, I'll do a plug for my friend in New Zealand here because he has done so much valuable research and I don't think he's really been given enough credit. Um, his uh, website is socialcapitalresearch.com and um, his last name is Claridge. And he has been there uh, studying social capital for 20 years. Um, I would encourage anybody to go there. He has a backlog of articles on social capital. He writes them regularly. Um, but seeing, you know, getting to meet people like Tristan Claridge and see the work that he's done and know that there are other people out there who find these things just as important to me, it really keeps me motivated. He kind of keeps my fire going to, to keep continuing to fight the good fight and, and uh, try to help the world just to see each other in a better light. Rick, uh, we, I think we are both uh, um, debated yesterday preparing to the episode. Um, what we got from your book is that you don't see what's happening on social media. Let's, let's say, for example, even if I have a following, whether it's friends, whether it's uh, fans, uh, you don't necessarily see them as uh, equivalent to a social capital, right? They would fall into that bridging category. I would, my, I would try to convert as many of them as, the, as I could to bonding. <laughs> um, and I don't get along with everybody. I'm not, I'm not sitting over here trying to preach and say that everybody gets along with me and everyone likes me. Um, but I find those deeper relationships help me to see the individual. Um, unfortunately, some of my bonding relationships have faded away over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have, you know, you got to think at, I have so many people that add me on LinkedIn or, um, or Facebook or anywhere else. And, you know, we don't have even the kind of communication that we're having right now, you know, yeah. this type of communication, we three right now are moving. You, you two are increasing your bonding capital. We're all moving forward together and toward bonding toward, toward becoming closer. And uh, there's so many people that add me that I never even have this kind of conversation with. I don't know if they add me, add me just to, Sometimes it's just a pitch. They'll add me, and the first message they send me is to pitch a product. So that's the <laughs> transactional uh, uh, type of relationship we mentioned. Yeah, very, very much so. And they don't even, I wouldn't even say they're trying to create a really bridging, uh, you know, beneficial relationship. Even, even uh, 
to that level. It's, yeah. it's very transactional. Um, and I'm not saying that you can't, uh, like we're doing right now, I mean, that you definitely can have those type of relationships, but as far as your network online, it is, it is very different. What's uh, happening at scale for, for someone with, let's say, 100,000 uh, followers, um, I, I'm sure that he's not able to create those bonding ties, uh, weak or strong, with even 1% of his uh, uh, followers. So where would that be categorized? What fascinates me is it, it's, an, it's an unequal relationship in most instances. So the followers may form some kind of internal bonding type relationship with the person. But to your point, that person uh, can't sustain 100,000 personal relationships, personal followers. So it creates kind of something, kind of a paradox that, that I've really not delved into, whereas you have all these people that have these bonding feelings toward this person and this other person who may be unaware of their existence. Um, it's very fascinating when you put it that way. I want to bring up the example of, have you heard about Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk? Yeah. He's all over yes. the internet. So Itai <laughs> and I um, know him and, and follow him online and not know him. We know him online. I know him. He, he actually <laughs> Just, met him in person. Yeah, yeah you actually <laughs> nice. met him in person. Yeah. So um, we are examining what's happening with him. And it's funny how... If we are talking about capital in a way that brings value to both parties, I do see him have that transaction. He's bringing value to his audience um, through either knowledge or information or motivation or whatnot. And then his, his fans are bringing him value through moving the needle or moving, bringing him more attention or et cetera. But the, the, the part that you, you triggered in me or, or you, you pointed was very interesting. I did feel the way you said three months into listening to Gary. I was like, I know a lot about Gary. And then I message him uh, as if it's my buddy. And then he doesn't respond. And then you're like, shit, he actually doesn't know anything about me. It's, it's just a one way relationship. But how much of those bonding do we need? Because we can't have... Dunbar's number says we can't have more than 150 stable relationships at the same time. So is this a filter to get the best 150 in our world? Or is it okay to have a scalable weak ties, have millions of weak ties? In, in capital form, I feel like that is helping. It's, it's a capital and it's helping economically. In, in personal, I, I see the, the struggle there. Now we're getting into kind of the levels at which these constructs interact. So you have a micro level social capital, the meso level, the exo level, and the macro level. And you describe benefits in the macro level because even if, if he just gets people to watch his videos, he's getting financial dollars through advertisement. And to your point, like I, I like Gary's videos. So you felt like you were building some kind of bonding. So you were getting something from it as well. Um, without any real interaction from him. I mean, you were getting interaction from him, just that, I guess, more passive interaction from him. I have, I have people that I look up to as well for, and I don't even know why, but like, I really like, um, there's some, there's some singers that I'm always connected with through their music. Like I'm, I'm feeling the same thing. Um, so yeah, I think we're, where, where I tend to focus because I want everybody to address themselves primarily because 
if we address ourselves here, then we can address our micro level around us, and then we can impact the world at a macro level. So um, a lot of my a lot of my uh, speaking on social capital and things like that would be at the micro level. These macro level conversations are very valid. I mean, influencers use them all the time. They've they've essentially commoditized their their capital. They're they're you know dis dispelling information onto the world, and everything's great. Um, so there there definitely is value there. Um, it just kind of it kind of falls out of the realm of my focus um, because I'm I'm looking at the individual. Um, I definitely think that you know there's there's scalability there, um, obviously because we've seen it. But the main key component even, there is you have to provide that trust. Sorry, but even within mm -hmm. your focus, does this type of relationship take away from that individual? Because mm -hmm. the moment I am invested in consuming content, it's taking away time from you know having real relationship with, with other uh, friends that I have. So I'm dedicated uh, time on that uh, scale. And on the, on the other end, the content creator is getting massive amount of social capital, is sucking everybody's capital and time and attention. And it gets me thinking about what Gary says. Attention is like real estate. It's, it's priceless. Like it, it's, that, it's that valuable. And when you get somebody's attention, you're taking away their social capital to be, uh, you know, to talking to their friends or colleagues. You're, you're getting that, that attention towards you. Is that going to make the type of environment where you know how they say richer get uh, rich people get richer? Is that how it's going to be? People who have attention, they're just going to build that social capital, and everybody else are going to be alone in a room and consuming content of somebody that they don't even know in person, but they feel like they know. I think it's harmful in that regard in a couple different ways because we have. <laughs> what you said, it's not helping, potentially not helping you as an individual. And, and as far as how many relationships you can maintain, I've even seen studies that say you can only maintain up to five and keep them close. So that's a, you know, between five and 150, somewhere in there lies the magic number. Um, but I do think it takes time away from physical relationships. So I think there's a hindrance there most definitely. And the other thing I think that happens is it honestly can help promote individualism with yourself. Because I think some people get addicted to these types of motivational things where they're sitting there singularly interacting with content and they do this for long periods of time and they might be able, you know, this, this gets into cognitive bias. They might st start uh, assigning false, false assumptions about their self and their abilities and their capabilities. Like Gary can do it. I definitely can. And that might influence them to go out without any communication with another actual individual and try to take out a loan for a business and fail horribly because at the end of the day, they don't have the skills to run a business. <laughs> and I'm not trying to detract away from his message. Like I said, I like Gary, I like, I like a lot of motivational people, but I think it, it can skew a perspective without those, those personal connections to really bounce ideas off of and talk like we are right now. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that everybody falls into that, but, uh, but yeah, definitely. Uh, as far as rich getting richer, um, it, definitely, it definitely can help them. I think that we all have to find our own passions and we have to find what we feel that we're good at, what we want to pursue and how we can help the world around us. And if those types of things are helping us to do that, wonderful. If they're setting us up for false expectations about our reality, and at the end of the day, we're literally just fueling these other people, 
and it's something we probably need to look at stepping away from uh, and, and pursue more physical face-to-face -face relationships or keep our bonding relationships and personal relationships more close. Um, any, anything can be negative. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rick, what's in your mind the future of social capital is like? What we're going to have to adapt to over the next decade or so? Well, we're in a unique situation where we all went, and I'm assuming you're similar to age as, as me, we all went to it from a world where technology wasn't a big part of our lives, it wasn't a huge part, to where now we're, we're doing this, we're doing a rapid video conversation right now. Um, so we had to adapt from the face-to-face -face environment to the digital environment. And now, you know, my children are having to really adapt from the digital environment to the face-to-face -face environment. And even more so now that they've been in the digital environment in school through the pandemic here at home. So they're going from a digital world to a face-to-face -face world. And we went from a face-to-face -face world to a digital world. We had to bridge that gap for ourselves coming into the digital realm. And we've really got to help bridge that gap for them coming out of the digital realm. You know, we have to be stewards of face-to-face -face communication and it's going to come down to an individual uh, decision to do that. And I think it's literally going to be part of the family structure to make rules around that and execute those processes to make this happen. Because honestly, there, there is a dire future we have for social capital. We have a dire existence coming ahead where I can see individualism taking, taking the, the, the front row seat in front of all types of social help for others or consideration for others individualism, ego spreading. We're already seeing it through social media channels. And the less face-to-face -face communication we have, the less interaction we have with other individuals, specifically individuals that are different than ourselves, we just continue to silo ourselves more and more. And you see geographical locations in the United States, they've been siloing themselves for years. This digital age that we find ourselves in takes that siloing from a geographical region to a town, to a home, to an individual's mind. And if you have the kind of silos where every single person thinks that their way is the only way and is the correct way, you find yourself in a very dangerous environment. And that's why I, I just find it so stressing that we tell each individual we need to look into ourselves, identify our cognitive biases, Make sure that when we're having conversations, we're having conversations to learn about the other individual. It's not just transactional. Everything doesn't just have to be transactional. And our lives are not just about us. There are other people out there. And I know there are people that are very focused on everything I'm saying. But I think, unfortunately, we're coming up where there's going to be a tipping point where people like that become the lesser and the more individualistic viewpoints and the silos become the majority. And then we've got a real problem on our hands. Yeah, I think that uh, the value of the non-transactional real relationship over time will be always greater than those who, who stay in that uh, mindset for sure. And going to the future, it's even more important because of the silo effect and uh, the fact that people are now able to choose their own communities even more and uh, be certain that whatever they are saying is echoing out there because they can find uh, a thousand, a million uh, people that are like them uh, across the world, basically. Exactly. 
And um, I just, I do want to have, you know, a positive viewpoint. I don't want to seem like I'm just speaking doom and gloom, but it really does take a lot from all of us uh, to, to do that and to appreciate uh, what we can share with each other. And to your point, um, I do see this train going really fast, really um, with, a, with a strong uh, momentum, just because of the efficiency and um, you know how in, in economical factors and, and um, uh, having talking about capital, the efficiency of online, the efficiency of working remote, the efficiency of me cloning myself on social media. When I put a video out there, I'm buying time for myself because instead of talking to a thousand individual, same conversation, I just put a video out there and then I start talking with someone else and then that replicate. And that's what Gary is doing. He's putting, you know, he's, he's dedicating his time into doing that. And I feel like he is exchanging his close bonding relationships to having millions of weak ties because it takes time. It takes, it takes a lot of time to do that at the expense of those close relationships. But the, the capital side and the profit or the economic behind it supports it. When do we get to a point that we reverse that? When do we get to a point? Do we have to hit a wall? Do we have to be mentally exhausted to the point that we are like, you know what? I need to reverse this. And, and when we do that, I'm going to make it a two-part question. When we do that, the problem I see is we choose to, to do the social media roam, but then the reverse, it's not, it's not up to us. We have to find other people that we can do the individual relationship because what if everybody else in our circle is doing the same and don't have time for us? Yeah, it's, it's definitely tricky and it's going to become even more more tricky. It all depends on what your aims are. And I truly believe that Gary is actually trying to help people succeed. So I think that his aims are, are, are positive. Um, but for people that do spend most of their time connecting, creating those weak bonds, that's socially taxing. And I'm surprised, you know, he, he must have a good, what I call homeostasis type structure with a few really close people that stick around and are there for him. I, that's what I would need. I only say that because that's exactly I would need myself. So if you're, if your goal is to, you know, make money and monetize those interactions, then that's, you know, that's, that's the game plan. That's what you've signed up for. And that's what you have to try to do. I think that um, if your goal is to really connect and bond with people, the best way to start doing that and to find those people that want to do that or find people that need your help. You know, you, you have a particular skill set, res as individual, you both do. Um, and you are good at things. So how can you help people? You know, one thing I do, I've put it out there uh, to, to my broader group that if there's someone, especially during this time, that needs help with relocation or finding a job or uh, working on their resume and things like that, that's something that I can do. And I have tried to help as many people as I possibly can. Those are quick and they're transactional on my side. I'm just trying to help them in that way but they're getting bonding capital out of it. They're getting those bonding feelings like this person for nothing that they're asking nothing for me and they're helping me. I'm, it's like seeds that I'm trying to plant. Now, if they, if they'll do the same when they, whatever that skill they have, if they'll do the same, it's starting to help mend that. And I think that through some of those, some of those interactions, I've really connected with some of those people and I've formed 
more of a bonding bonding type relationship with them. So um, it's really sharing trust with them. Like, I'm going to help you do this. I expect nothing from it. This is just the type of person that I am. And I want you to trust me that I'm going to do a good job. And at the end of the day, I'm truly going to help you. And I'm not going to leave you in the same place I found you. And when you can do that for someone, that's just so powerful. And it's something that sticks with them and that they'll remember uh, for years, hopefully. Um, but through that, I guess the first step to find those people that want that is to see what, ask yourself, what can I do for someone else? And when you're able to ask that and you're able to do that, you will, you will meet those people that are looking for. You're doing great stuff out there, doctor. And the fact that you reached out, you, you commented on my post and then I reached out to you in terms of um, if you'd like to be part of this podcast, that just shows social capital right there. And, and you're open to all these opportunities. I'm very appreciative of it. And your book is amazing. I've been telling people if you're interested in, in this area and you want to learn a little bit, it's quite, uh, you're trying to bring a very, and I appreciate this, very heavy subject into a more easy language, but it's not easy. I, I talked about it with Itai. Itai still found it a little bit heavy on the content side. I had some research on, I did some research on it, so I, I had an easier time reading it. But to those people who are interested, it's definitely an amazing book. Check it out, Social Capital 2.0 by Dr. Rick Mask. And I let Itai um, take it from Yeah, and, and you can get it on Amazon. And uh, okay, that was week 10. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rick Mask. We really uh, enjoyed the conversation and appreciate your time and you creating the, this type of social capital with us here on the podcast. So much appreciated. Uh, there is anything you want to tell to our listeners to conclude? I just wanted to say thank you, Itai. Thank you, Reza, for, for having me. Please, I genuinely mean it. Stay in touch. If you're ever in New Hampshire for whatever reason, reach out. We will, we will grab dinner or whatever you'd like. Um, and I just want to encourage everyone, like I said, um, you know, a couple resources, social, socialcapitalresearch.com, Tristan Claridge, who's from New Zealand, absolutely amazing. Also, you can look for the um, uh, Cognitive Bias Codex, and you can introduce yourself to the 180 verified cognitive biases that you might have. And some of them are actually pretty funny, the things that we do as human beings to speed up our processes. Uh, but it will help you to slow down and take the time you need to help form better relationships with those around you and not get in your own way where you're trying to network. So Love that. Perfect uh, timing for it. Love <laughs> that. I'll check it out for sure. Maybe we should do yeah. another episode on that in, in a year or so. <laughs> it's awesome. Fun. Yeah. Absolutely. So thank you again very much. That was week 10 and we'll see you next week. Bye.